Please take your Bibles tonight and let's go to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6 as we continue our series through the book of Daniel on Wednesday nights. Where the overall message of this book is how God is sovereign among the nations. He's in complete control. He knows what's happening on the world stage. Amen. He's aware of what's happening in Ukraine. He knows the outcome. He is ordering things. He orchestrates it all. Remember in Daniel 2.21 it says, And he, speaking of God, changeth the times and the season. He removeth kings and setteth up kings and giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. Remember that this was the whole reason why Nebuchadnezzar had to be humbled in the field like a beast for seven years. Until, as Daniel 4.25 says, Thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. And at the close of chapter 5 last week, we saw the fall of the Babylonian Empire as they were conquered by the Medo-Persians, which was all foretold of by God well in advance through the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah. And it was foretold in Daniel chapter 2 as well in the dream that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar. The head of gold has now fallen and the chest and arms of silver are now in power. What seems, what would have seemed like a chaotic night to those in Babylon when Belshazzar was killed, God calmly was at work upon his throne in heaven. He puts one down and he raises up another as he sees fit. And so we come to chapter 6 tonight. We find Darius, or Darius, we're going to say Darius. Darius the Mede is now in charge by the will of God. And this is made clear in Daniel 11.1, which says, there's an angel who's speaking to Daniel and says, also in the first year of Darius the Mede, even I stood to confirm and to strengthen him. And chapter 6 is one of the most well-known chapters in all of the Bible. This is where we have the account of Daniel being cast into the den of lions. And with that, let's read from chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. And actually, let's read the last verse of chapter 5 as we go here. And Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom an hundred and twenty princes, which should be over the whole kingdom. And over these three And over these three presidents, of whom Daniel was first, that the princes might give account unto them, and the king should have no damage. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king thought to set him over the whole realm. Then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom. But they could find none occasion nor fault, for as much as he was faithful... Neither was there any error or fault found in him. Then said these men, We shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Then these presidents and princes assembled together to the king and said thus unto him, King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the governors and the princes, the counselors and the captains have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for thirty days, save of thee, O king, he shall be cast into the den of lions. And they're already lying. Daniel never agreed to that. But they said all of them 
are in agreement. Anyway, verse 8, Now, O king, establish a decree and sign the writing that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. Wherefore, King Darius signed the writing and the decree. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house, and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. Amen. So we've now come to the reign of Darius the Mede. His reign takes place between Belshazzar, the last king of the Babylonians, and Cyrus the Great, who will take over after Darius. Now, little is known about Darius the Mede. Really, all that is known is that what's in the Bible. And we're sure he existed because he is in the Bible. Secular history doesn't record this man. It has caused Bible critics to say, see, this is all fiction. And they have used that to say, most of these accounts in Daniel are fictitious, and the ones that can be proven, it's Daniel was written well after the fact because no man could predict all this. And they're right, but God predicted it, amen. And so there's all kind of critics here. But there's something I didn't mention while we were in chapter 5, and that is concerning Belshazzar, did you know at one point secular history never recognized him either? And they used that to say that all that was contained in chapter 5 was made up. But then, oops, a tablet was discovered, or actually it kind of came to light in 1879. It's known as the Nabonidus Chronicle, and it verified Belshazzar's co-reigning with his father Nabonidus. <laughs> so don't let the naysayers try to tell you that the Bible isn't true. Just stay with the Bible record. Amen? Amen. From Daniel 5.31, we know Darius was 62 years old when he began to reign. And it would appear from our biblical record that Darius, the Medes' reign over the former provinces of Babylon, was short-lived. Probably into his second year would have been the end of his reign, but there's no way to really know for sure. Uh, For those who do accept the biblical record of his existence, uh, the most popular opinion is that he was the uncle of Cyrus the Great, And I was trying to study all that out, and it'll drive you crazy because there's not a whole lot of history uh, with the Medes. And so there was supposedly some marriage that took place to kind of unite all this. But whatever the case, um, most believe he was the uncle of Cyrus. And he's mentioned at the end of chapter 6, if you wanted to glance down to the last verse, there's Darius the Medes' reign into the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Some suppose that Cyrus was ultimately in charge, though, uh, through all of this, and that Darius and Cyrus shared a co-regency where Darius was left in charge in Babylon while Cyrus went back to Persia. And this connection is made biblically from Daniel 9.1, which says Darius the Mede was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. We'll see in chapter 8 how it was foretold there would be a, these two powers and one would kind of take over the other. We'll see that with the ram of the vision that Daniel has that has two horns and one horn will be greater than the other. And that's a picture of the Persians succeeding uh, the, the Medes and they will become more powerful than the Medes were. And we get a sense from comparing Daniel 6.1 and Esther 1 of how the Persian Empire became greater We're told here that there were 120 princes, which presumably indicates there would be 120 provinces that they were over. 
And then when you compare that with Esther chapter 1 and verse 1, under the reign of Ahasuerus, the Persian, we find that there are 127 provinces. So it was growing. And we're told over there that that kingdom spread from India all the way over to Ethiopia. So it was a massive empire by the time the Persians uh, took full control. Whatever the case, here's what we know for face value here in verse 1 of our text. The Medes first ruled over what was Babylon, and the first ruler is Darius the Mede. And it appears from verse 2 that Darius's form of government was more parliamentary than that of Babylon. He has 120 princesses, but he makes them accountable to these three presidents. And this may have been similar to what we call the Secretary of State, maybe something like that. And the king made the princes accountable to these three presidents in order that the king would incur no damage. What does that mean? Well, a couple of things. He didn't want the princes to abuse their position of power because now that they're in charge of provinces, they're in charge of collecting the tribute, and they can wrong people and make money off of this, which can look bad on the king. And this is a new form of government being set up with all these people, so he wants to stay in good graces with everybody as much as possible. But also, it was a way to protect the king's revenue to make sure he's getting all his due and that nobody's cheating him. And we see that Daniel was made the first out of the three presidents. Now, this is quite an advancement, isn't it, for a man of his age? By now, Daniel's at least in his mid-80s, and he's elevated to this very high position. So just a side note here, Our modern concept of retirement is nowhere to be found in the Bible, for what that's worth. It appears Daniel followed the command to work six and rest one all the days of his life. Of course, we don't know the end of his life. Perhaps Darius was more willing to install a man of Daniel's age, seeing how Darius was 62 years of age when he took over himself, and maybe he had learned by wisdom by experience, to have elders in places of authority and in places of leadership. It stands to reason that Darius would have heard of the wisdom of Daniel beforehand. And if, if so, then he would have known that this is a man who was not into flattering the king. This is a man who would be honest. He probably heard that Daniel had foretold of Belshazzar's death and the the end of the kingdom of the Babylonian Empire uh, just recently before this. And the Bible says in Proverbs 14.35, the king's favor is toward a wise servant. And we would be wise to have those around us who will be honest with us. Amen. Not just tell us what we want to hear all the time. But we live in that day, don't we? We see it in churches everywhere. Just tickle my ears and tell me what I want to hear. I didn't come here to get, uh, quote-unquote, chewed out. You want honesty. And not somebody that's just going to flatter you and give you what you want to hear. And so you want these kind of people in your life. You want your pastor to be honest. You want your deacons to be honest. You want your parents to be honest. Your friends ought to be honest. And you ought, to, you ought to make sure you're surrounding yourself with people that are honest. I'm not saying being rude or ugly. 
but that are just honest and are honest with the Word of God, who will give us counsel when we need it according to God's Word. Now, we do know for sure that Daniel was preferred above the other two presidents because in verse 3 it says he had an excellent spirit. And this should be said of, of all of God's children in the workforce. We ought to be known as, as having an excellent spirit. Because of Daniel's excellent spirit, the king thought to set him over the whole realm. <laughs> this is amazing that this captive is essentially now made the prime minister over this empire. And I think it'd be okay to kind of tip our hat to Darius here and for the fact that he's elevating Daniel. He's a man who was a servant, and he was a servant under the previous empire. And by taking over the Babylonians, Darius had every right to view all of them as enemies. But instead, he sees something in this man, and he elevates him to this high position, and he entrusts him with all of this responsibility. And of course, this speaks volumes about Daniel's character and his reputation and his work ethic. Amen. It's good for a man to work. All right, I'm not going to go there. And for any who may feel that Christians should have no part in government, then you ought to really consider Daniel. This is a man who gave his entire life to his government. Even a pagan one. And he served. And he was in politics. He was involved. I don't like when people say we should have no business in politics. Last I checked, God is the one who anointed kings back in the Old Testament. He's interested. We ought to be interested. And so don't fall for that lie that we should have nothing to do with it. We should. Now, as we think about the events that are going to unfold in this chapter and how Daniel has already been elevated, his reputation went before him. As we think about Daniel being in this great position of power, we really need to pause here and acknowledge that the events of chapter 6 are a result of his entire life being lived for the glory of God. You see, he just didn't wake up and Darius go, oh, I think I'll make Daniel in charge. No, no, no. He had lived his entire life the right way. He faithfully walked with God through the entire 70-year Judean captivity and even beyond that, as we'll see as the book unfolds. It wasn't by accident that Daniel was given this position at his age. But understand that Daniel made some decisions in his youth. Amen. Daniel made some decisions in his youth. And those followed him all the days of his life. Remember all the way back in chapter 1, likely only as a teenager, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat. And I try to get young people to hear me and to understand that the decisions that they make in their late teens and their early 20s are most often going to be what will follow them for the rest of their life. Those habits that you develop. The patterns that you follow. And I know this from experience, both good and bad. You see, if church isn't important to you now, it's probably not going to be important to you in the future. If you can tune out the message of the messenger today, then you'll be able to tune them out tomorrow. 
If you only find fault today with the church, you'll find fault with it tomorrow. If you can chat through the message today, you'll chat through the message next week. If you can justify laying out of church now just because you don't feel like going, you'll find reasons not to go tomorrow. If getting wisdom from the Word of God isn't important in your life now, there's a good chance it won't be important in your old age. If it's not important today, then why is it going to be important tomorrow? If you aren't willing to follow God's Word today, then what makes you think you will later on? If prayer is not important today, then why will it be important tomorrow? If you don't develop a prayer life now, you'll find yourself praying then when you only need something from God. If you don't learn to give to God now, what makes you think you'll give in the future? You really think it's going to be easier to give when you're making more money? (laughs) And if you don't learn to witness today, why would you start witnessing tomorrow? Now, I just gave you five to thrive if you picked up on that. These are the fundamentals. In other words, if you don't learn these fundamentals now, don't think they're going to magically develop over time. Now, thank God He is faithful. And He can overcome our missteps. But you need to get serious about your walk with God now. If you don't cultivate a walk with God today, when are you going to do so? And I'm just saying, the things of God need to reach deep into our heart. And it's in our youth when we are first faced with the reality of what we are going to do about God and the things of God. Will God and His Word have the preeminence in your life now? If not, why will it have the preeminence later in life? You see, how you weather the storms of tomorrow are going to depend in large part on the decisions you've made in the past and how you're currently living in the present. What makes people think that they're going to live for God when the difficult times arrive, when they won't even live for God during the good times? Where do people get the idea they're going to finish strong if they've never lived strong? And if you don't get it settled now, there's going to come a point in your life when you realize you've wasted it. And listen to me, it doesn't get any easier the older you get. In fact, I think we can make the argument it gets more difficult. The decisions are greater, the consequences are more severe, our bodies break down. And like Daniel, your greatest test may come towards the end of your life. This is probably his greatest test here. And yet he remains faithful. And let's not miss the fact that Daniel's able to weather all of this because he remained faithful to what he started all the way back when he was a youth. So we all have a choice to make. Deuteronomy 30, verses 19 and 20, it says, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both thou and thy seed may live, that thou mayest love the Lord thy God, and that thou mayest obey His voice, and that thou mayest cleave unto Him, for He is thy life and the length of thy days. 
Joshua 24, 15. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served on that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose, land, in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 1 Kings 18, 21. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. And the people answered him, not a word. Your life and your walk with God is all a result, a, a result of the choices you make. Who are you choosing to serve? How long will you choose the things of the world? If the Lord be God, follow Him. Because you're as close to God today as you choose to be. Remember how Martha was cumbered about with much serving. She wanted Mary to help and called on the Lord to make her. But he let Martha know Mary's chosen that one needful thing. And that was to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from Him. So what are you choosing today? We need to start choosing the needful things. And to our young people in here, I would say, remember now thy Creator in the days of your youth. While the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. You can find that in Ecclesiastes 12.1. If you are older and you've wasted your youth, then determine to start living for God today. And then pray that by His mercy He will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. I can tell you God has been very merciful to me for the time that I wasted in the past. But I can also tell you there was a time back there in my early 20s when I finally decided to just go ahead and sell out for God. And my point is, there needs to be effort on your part. So back to our text, we see in verse 4 that the other presidents and the princes don't like that Daniel has been selected to such a high position in Darius's cabinet. And as a result, they seek something they can bring against him. But they can find no fault because he was faithful in both word and deed, in both word and action. And we should be reminded of our Lord here. They tried to find fault with Jesus, but they could find nothing. They tried to catch him in his words, but they couldn't until finally they brought false witnesses against him. We see these men here in Daniel, they saw that he was not only faithful in business, but in verse 5, they see that he was faithful to his God. Specifically concerning his faithfulness to the law of God. He not only professed his faith, but he demonstrated his faith. And look at what they say in Daniel 6.5. Then said these men, we shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. What a testimony. I mean, just think about the power of what's being said there. And this reminded me of the old saying, if you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And it's still a good question to ponder. Remember when Peter found himself unofficially on trial. He may have failed at that hour, but do you remember what they said about him? 
they charged him there around the fire and they said that he had been with Jesus. Could the lost world accuse you of being with Jesus? Would your fingerprints be found on the scriptures that are printed down at the print press? Would the pages of your Bible be found worn from reading it? Would they determine that you follow God's Word? Would your neighbors be able to testify that you leave for church like clockwork every week? Would they be able to say they've seen and heard you pray? Would they find a personal prayer list somewhere? Would your checking account reveal that you've been faithfully giving to God? Would people be able to testify that you've tried leading them to Christ? If you can't say for certain that you'd be convicted of being a Christian, it's time to examine yourself and see whether you be in the faith. Because being a believer in Christ should lead to being a Christian, which means there should be a change in your life. I'm not saying you're going to be perfect. I'm not saying it's going to happen overnight. But there ought to be a change in your life. Would you be convicted of being a Christian in the eyes of the lost world? Haggai 1.5 says, Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And if you're in faith tonight, then maybe you need to draw closer or even return to the Lord. Lamentations 3.40 says, Let us search and try our ways and turn again to the Lord. And so I guess the overall message tonight is what is your testimony? What is your testimony in the eyes of the world? Are you being found faithful? If you aren't as faithful as you should be, then why not start tonight? Amen. Why not just drive a stake in the ground tonight and say, from this day forward, I'm going to give it my all. Develop godly habits that will be with you for the rest of your life. Because I will assure you those bad habits will follow you. Make God your priority tonight. Don't waste your life. Let's pray.